If you remember last time when we were in Acts, uh, the Jewish Christians chose seven people to represent the Hellenistic widows who were uh, being left out in the daily food distribution. And one of the men that was selected was Stephen. It was a man named Stephen. And if you guys remember, Luke was careful to record that he met the qualifications and that he was a man full of the Holy Spirit. Stephen had a good reputation among the people, and he was a faithful disciple of Jesus. And so now, Luke introduces him in the last narrative that we talked about, but he's going to focus on him even more right here. Let's, uh, let's begin by reading uh, verses 8 to 15. Well, I'm not going to read it, because <laughs> we just read the text, but, um, but that's, the, that's the part we'll be focusing on first. So Stephen, in the text, in verses 8 to 15, he was going around, and he was doing signs and wonders. Uh, he was also teaching, but some, uh, the text says, uh, began to dispute him. Some people began to dispute him. But notice what it says in verse 10. They could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Now Jesus, if you guys remember, in the Gospels, Jesus said this would happen. Uh, in Luke 12, Luke, the same author of Acts, uh, he, has, he, he quotes Jesus saying, And when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. And we've seen that, right, with the apostles before the Sanhedrin. They've been before the Sanhedrin twice now, and both times Luke is careful to mention that they were full of the Holy Spirit as they're talking. The Holy Spirit is telling them what to say in that hour of need. And now the Holy Spirit is with Stephen. In my experience... Often when people, they get into an argument, when they get into an argument and they've been outmatched or they've been silenced, they have nothing to say, they often start moving towards misrepresenting or twisting what the person's saying or start attacking the person themselves. That's exactly what we see start to happen here. Because they couldn't withstand the wisdom and the, the, of the Holy Spirit coming through Stephen's words, because of that, uh, they had him brought before a council, and Luke says they secretly instigated men, verse 11. Verse 13, they set up false witnesses against him. And at this council, these false witnesses accuse Stephen of three things. He's being accused of three things. They claimed that he was speaking against Moses, verse 11, they claim that he was speaking against the temple uh, when they say in verse thir uh, 13, this man never ceases to speak against this holy place. And this holy place is referring to the temple and they even go so far as to say he's saying that Jesus is going to come back and destroy the temple. Something which Jesus did say. I will say there is another accusation, and so that he's speaking against the law, uh, which could be tied to Moses, but uh, that issue's not really going to be dealt with here in this narrative. That's not going to be talked about too much here. That's going to be dealt with more in Acts 15 at the Jerusalem Council, so we're not really going to focus on that this morning. But lastly, underneath it all, 
they accuse him of blaspheming God. Again, verse 11. So Stephen, continuing to to preach the gospel, he was arrested and accused of speaking against some of the things that are at the very heart of their religion, at the very heart of Judaism. Now, if you guys have been following along these past uh, few months or several months, you guys have, uh, we have been noticing that the, um, that the attention has been, uh, the opposition has been increasing against the, the Christian movement. Uh, in Acts 4, Peter and John are before the Sanhedrin, and it ended with the Sanhedrin just giving them a warning to not preach in Jesus' name. Then a little bit later, they're in front of the Sanhedrin again, and this time the persecution escalates to the point where they beat the apostles and give them another warning. So each time these Christians, they, they inter- encounter opposition, the opposition continues to increase in their anger and, and hostility. And now, here we are again. What's going to happen to Stephen? We could spend three to four five weeks going over Stephen's response, which does a whole lot of things, but I instead want to focus on Stephen's answers to their accusations, primarily the accusations that we just spoke about, that he speaks against Moses and the temple. In his response, he gives a lot of seemingly irrelevant details, but Stephen's actually doing something much bigger, and I hope that I can help you guys see that this morning. In any movement you can think of, there's going to be key figures, key people, key events, things that happened to, that led to what that movement is today. If we were to talk about our faith as Protestants, we would, we would go back to uh, that church door in, at Wittenberg in 1517 when Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses there. And then we, uh, we recall his heroic stance at the uh, Diet of Worms. And then we'd probably move on to Zwingli and Calvin and, and then the, Pur- uh, the Puritan movement in England and how uh, the Baptists, like John Smith, he, uh, he, he arose out of that Puritan movement and began the Baptist movement. But let me ask you a question. As great as our history is as Protestants, how do you think a Catholic would tell our story? Many of us love the story of America, but how do you think a a British person would tell our history? Well, that's what Stephen's doing in his response. He's going to some of the key figures and events in Israel's history, and he's retelling the story in a different light. He goes to Abraham and Joseph and Moses and David and others, and he's saying, let's take another look at our history and try to understand it properly. Let's try to understand our story in Scripture properly. Notice what's implied in that. Stephen sees Scripture as one linear, continuous, harmonious story that progressively unfolds. The biblical authors like Daniel and Nehemiah and Paul and the Jewish tradition in general, and now Stephen, 
used to explain their point and explain uh, scripture by tracing themes and retelling the story. Stephen knows that to truly break down a faulty foundation, to truly uproot bad theology and replace it with a robust and deep and accurate understanding of scripture, what he's not going to do is give a proof text or two to his point. He knows that he needs to go back to the beginning and interpret the story correctly and make sure that that's right so we can understand where we're at today. So the first accusation. How does Stephen respond to the accusation that he's speaking against Moses? Well, he starts with Abraham and the, and the covenant that God made with Abraham. Because to a Jew, the calling of Abraham was the moment that God launched his new creation project. That was the moment that God began to set things right in the world. It was the moment that he made a covenant with the Jewish people to save the world through them. But then he goes on to take some subtle jabs at the Jews through Joseph and Moses. Uh, and look at chapter 7, verses 9 to 14. It says, And the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt, but God was with him and rescued him out of all his afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who made him ruler over Egypt and over all his household, now there came a famine throughout all Egypt and Canaan and great affliction, and our fathers could find no food. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent our fathers on their first visit. And on the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers, and Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. And Joseph sent and summoned Jacob, his father, and all his kindred, 75 persons in all. So here he's, he's, telling, he's retelling the story about Joseph, and he tells the story about Joseph as being this kind, generous man who held out redemption and forgiveness to a jealous people who betrayed him. Now Stephen has been preaching about a kind, generous man named Jesus who's holding out redemption to a people who, betray, who, who killed him. He's hoping that they, they pick up on the subtle parallel and application to themselves. But then he goes on to describe how the Jews went on to, to grow and multiply and then mentions a, a part of the story in Exodus where Moses tries to redeem the Israelites through killing an Egyptian in verses 23 and 25. Look at that really quick. It's a small few verses. When he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel, and seeing one of them being wronged, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. So notice that Stephen mentions... He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. And Stephen is saying this in a context where he believes the council should understand that God is giving them salvation uh, through Jesus, but they're not understanding. 
But here is the real answer to the accusation of speaking against Moses. It's in verse 37, chapter 7, verse 37. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. So the witnesses, they've been, these false witnesses have been accusing Stephen of speaking against Moses because Stephen was saying that Jesus would do away with what Moses gave them. And so Stephen responds back by saying that believing in another and an even greater one would come out of Israel was what Moses himself taught all along. And Stephen's point is, is that if he is believing in Jesus, believing in this prophet that came from among Israel, he's doing what Moses expected him to do. And if you're not believing in the prophet that Moses talked about, Jesus, you're not doing what Moses expected him to, you to do. So the point is, he's saying, I'm not the one that's speaking against Moses, or I'm not the one against Moses, you are. And so as he's telling the story, you can see the table slowly turning. The second accusation against Stephen was that he was speaking against the temple. What did the temple mean to a Jew? In scripture, there are some key symbols, there are key places and, and, and days, and, and these were uh, very important to the Jewish person. The Old Testament Sabbath, for instance, was sacred time. There's going to be a day in the future where man will have eternal rest with God, and that uh, eternal time, that eternity, is brought for one day into the present to celebrate on the Sabbath. If the Sabbath was sacred time, the temple was sacred space. The temple was at the center of Jewish life. The temple was where everything happened. And so to speak against the temple, as they were accusing Stephen of doing, was to speak against Judaism and ultimately speaking against God as well. Now Stephen, he does go back uh, to the beginning of Jewish history with Abraham in his response uh, to retell the story from a different angle, but he could have very well went back to the beginning of it all. What exactly was the temple? What was the temple? And we have to understand this, so I'm going to explain what the temple was, uh, and we have to understand this, so we're going to understand Stephen's point. Simply, heaven, what is heaven? It's not just a place where angels float on, float on clouds and play harps. Heaven, to a Jew, was the place where God dwells. That's God's space. Earth is the place where man dwells. That's man's space. In a temple was the one place where heaven and earth overlapped. God's space and man's space became one. By looking at the parallels in a Jewish tabernacle and the, and the later temples and ancient Near Eastern literature, it's very, very clear 
that what God was making in the six days of creation was a temple on the earth. Deity rests inside a temple, and we'll actually see that in a second in Isaiah, when he quotes Isaiah in a second, he's talking about a temple, and he's talking about resting there. Deity rests inside of a temple, and what happens on the seventh day? God rested. That doesn't mean he's tired from creating things. What that means is that he's ceasing from his creation work, and he is taking up residence in the temple that he created. And so if the earth was created to be a temple, Eden was the holy of holies. Adam and Eve Eve were in the garden, and Genesis tells us that God walked with them in the midst of the garden. God's space and man's space were one in the garden of Eden. That's a temple. And when God tells Adam and Eve to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, God is wanting to have image bearers dwell with him over all the earth. He wants the entire earth to be the holy of holies, the entire earth to be the most holy place. Not just for heaven and earth to overlap, but for heaven and earth to be united and to become one, which is, by the way, what we see in Revelation at the very end, heaven coming down and uniting with the earth. God's space and man's space becoming one, a a, a temple. And so, Stephen begins his argument about the temple with Abraham. And and I'm just going to go through a few verses, and and I'm just going to tell you to skip down to this verse, skip down to this verse, because I'm just going to highlight throughout his argument uh, a couple of verses. So look at uh, 7 verse 2. I'll explain afterwards. Uh, Stephen said... Brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia. Now skip down to verse 7. But I will judge the nation that they serve, said God, and after that they shall come out and worship me in this place. In this place refers to Mount Sinai or Mount Horeb. Now skip down to verse 9. And the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt, but God was with him. Now, go to verses 30 to 33. And this is uh, when Moses, uh, when, when 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai in a flame of fire in a bush. When Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight. And, he, and as he drew near to look, there came the voice of the Lord. I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and, I, and of Isaac and of Jacob. And Moses trembled and did not dare to look. Then the Lord said to him, Take off the sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Sacred space. Now why is Stephen, in all these verses, why is he mentioning the presence of God in all these locations? He keeps saying, God was with Abraham in Mesopotamia. He was with Israel at Sinai. He was with Joseph in Egypt. And again with Moses at Sinai. What Stephen is doing is he's trying to uproot the false theology that believed that God can be contained inside of a temple or in Jerusalem. Which is why he gives the very 
very clear teaching from Isaiah. Look at verses 48 to 50. Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands, as the prophet says. Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord, or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? So because, or because Stephen was making the claim that the Jewish temple would be done away with through Jesus, the Jews thought that that was blasphemous. But in order for the gospel to go beyond Jerusalem and into Samaria and the rest of the world, Stephen needed to show them that these other people in these nations, they don't need to come to Jerusalem to worship God and encounter God. God can meet people wherever they're at. Just as he met Abraham in Mesopotamia and Joseph in Egypt, he can meet a Samaritan in Samaria and a Gentile in Corinth. He doesn't need a building. Rich uh, read uh, this morning uh, John 4, and and, um, in John 4, Jesus told the woman uh, in Samaria, that they're going to come a day, there's going to come a time when people will not have to come to worship God in Jerusalem. And Stephen is saying, that time is now. As a matter of fact, Stephen says, you guys are going way too far with the temple. Look at verse 41. And they made a calf in those days and offered a sacrifice to the idol and were rejoicing in the works of their hands. Rejoicing in the works of their hands. Taking that statement and combining it with a Stephen's paraphrase and quote from Isaiah that God doesn't dwell in houses made by human hands, and you take that with rejoicing in the work of their hands that he says here, you take that together, Stephen seems to be accusing them of making the temple an idol. Just as the Jews in Egypt had made a golden calf an idol, the Jews in front of Stephen made the temple created by human hands an idol. They care more about the building and the religious authority that it gave them than they did about the God they think is contained inside that temple. And so to summarize so far where we've been, Stephen was teaching that the customs of Moses in the temple would be done away with, but the accusation against Stephen that he was speaking against Moses in the temple was false. That was wrong. He wasn't speaking against Moses in the temple. The Jews were clinging to Moses and the temple, making them an idol. When Stephen understood the proper function and purpose that they had and that they ultimately pointed beyond themselves. If people used to travel by horse and carriage, but now more so by car, does that mean that the horse carriage wasn't important? It served its purpose, but now it's no longer necessary. 
And in a similar way, Moses and the law and the temple, they were temporary. They served a purpose, but now they're no longer necessary. And Jesus is going to do away with them. And why is that? Why is Stephen teaching that now that Jesus is here, that the old covenant with Moses and the, and the temple can be done away with? I'm going to say that again. Why is Stephen teaching that now that Jesus is here, the teaching of Moses and the temple and the covenant with Moses that can be done away with? Well, let me ask you guys a question. If you're standing on the side of a building, let's say this, this is a building right here, and all I can see is the corner and I see a shadow peeking out around the corner and I'm staring at the shadow, but then all of a sudden a person comes into view, what am I going to do? I'm going to stop staring at the shadow and I'm going to start looking at the person. Well, the Jews were still staring at the shadow of Moses in the temple when the substance, Jesus, had arrived. Stephen knows that Jews no longer need Moses because they had a greater redeemer, lawgiver, and covenant mediator in Jesus. They no longer needed the temple because everything the temple was and what it stood for found its actual meaning in Jesus. If the temple was the place where sacrifices were offered, Jesus is the perfect sacrifice. If the temple was the place where people were forgiven of sins, now people can go directly to Jesus for forgiveness of sins. If the temple was the place where God's space and man's space became one, then Jesus being fully man and fully God in one person is the true temple, the true substance of the temple. He's the substance of what the temple stood for. So while the Jews are busy, focused on Moses and the temple, they're missing the reality that they both pointed to. What Stephen is essentially saying to this council is, stop staring at shadows, the substance is here. Or as one author put it, stop staring at candles, the sun is rising. And this, some of the things we talked about has some application for us, right? Though, even though some of us would never verbally express it this way, some of us act and say things that demonstrate that make too much of a church building. We, and, it, and this is fine, some of this stuff is fine. We dress up on Sundays, we put on smiles, and, and some of us are on our best behavior, and we tend to to treat the building as a, a shrine or believe that coming to church is really the place where we come to meet and worship God. I am in no way undermining the necessity of corporate worship and the, and the importance of it. Scripture knows nothing of a lone Christian. But really the worship we have on Sunday should be the culmination of our worshiping God everywhere throughout the week. 
God isn't contained in a church building, and you can meet Jesus at any time, any place. You'll sometimes hear people say things like, like, don't curse at church, or don't lie in God's house, and things like that. And that shows that you really think that somehow God is, is more here in this building than he is everywhere else. And the reality is that you shouldn't curse or lie anywhere because God is everywhere. But back to our text. How are the Jews going to respond to hearing that Moses and the temple can be done away with because now Jesus has come? And it's in the last section, verses 54 to 60. I'll spare you the the reading of that. But essentially, they were so angry at Stephen and his teaching that threatened their traditions and their idols, and they killed him. From chapters 3 to 7, we've been seeing an increasing tension between the Jewish religious leaders and Judaism and the, and the new Christian movement. And the entire time, the religious leaders have been flirting with the idea of killing the Christians. And now in our text, the tension has finally come to his resolution. They are ready to kill. But notice the way that Stephen dies. We talked about the temple and how uh, you could go to even Exodus 40, the glory of the Lord fills the, temp, uh, the tabernacle after they, after they build the tabernacle. Then you go to 1 Kings 7, and after uh, Solomon builds the temple, the glory of the Lord comes and fills the temple. And, and now what do we see in our text in verse 55? But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. We talked about the temple being the place where people are forgiven of sins, and now look at verse 60. Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Stephen is going directly to the true temple to ask them to be forgiven. He's also imitating Jesus in his death. He's imitating him. At the cross, Jesus asked for forgiveness of those who were mocking and and crucifying him, and he also gave up his spirit to the Father as he died. And Stephen is also asking for forgiveness of those killing him and asking now Jesus to actually receive his spirit. And notice also the great vision and peace and grace that Stephen received as he took his final breaths and became the first Christian martyr. That's honestly not just for Stephen. We often hear about this kind of wonderful grace that God gives to to Christians on their deathbeds and in some, some of those moments. It's been said Tradition has it that almost every one of the apostles died horrific deaths. But the tradition also says that when they were going to their deaths, they were singing hymns. And we know 
that Stephen had the grace of seeing the Lord before he died, and then he woke up into eternity to never-ending joy and glory in the presence of Jesus. If you're here today, and you're watching from home, and you've sang today, and you've heard about this God-man, this, this true temple named Jesus, and you're thinking to yourself, I want to know more about him. I want you to know that you can know him today. You don't have to find a preacher. You don't have to be at a church building. You can find him anywhere. Go to him like I did many years ago. It was in my room. I wasn't at a church building. Once I understood the weight of my sin, I went to Jesus. I went, I prayed to God, and then Jesus, God revealed his son to me through the word. The word opened up to me, never wanted to read the Bible before. All of a sudden, wanted to start reading the Bible the next day. And Jesus was glorious on every page. He'll reveal himself to you as well. The Bible says, seek the Lord while he may be found. Go to him today. The Jews wanted their religion to be contained in Jerusalem. But Jesus wanted the gospel to break into Samaria and the ends of the earth. And after Stephen's speech, that God isn't contained in a temple in Jerusalem and that Jesus can meet people anywhere they are, what we're going to see next week is that the gospel does break out of Jerusalem into, and into Samaria. It's amazing how you see how these ancient writers like piece their narrative together in, the, in true history still. Just, it, it's, it's just, I don't know, it's wonderful. But even while all this is going on, God has picked a man to take the gospel to the Gentile nations. A man so brilliant and so versed in Jewish law that he was taught by Gamaliel himself. A man so zealous that he would arrest and persecute anyone that he felt opposed Judaism. He's introduced in our text as a man who watched the coats of the men who stoned Stephen. He was from Tarsus. His name was Saul. Let's pray. Father, thank you for another opportunity to preach your word and to be here to go deeper in your word and to uh, learn more about Jesus this morning. I just, I pray, Father, that you be with us throughout the week, that we continue to, to seek out the true temple, Jesus. Thank you that we don't have to go to some location on the earth to encounter you. Thank you that you can meet us anywhere and everywhere. We are so thankful for that, Father. We are so thankful for that, Lord Jesus. Thank you that I can be forgiven right here. I can be forgiven at my house. I can be forgiven anywhere. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.